Welcome to Searching the Sacred. I'm Jason Steffenhagen. I'm Steph Spencer. And I'm Lisa Adams. We are hosting conversations about scripture for the curious, doubters, and hope seekers. We're inviting people to ask different questions, questions asked by those who have been wounded and hurt, questions asked by those who have deconstructed and are looking for a reconstruction. We're creating space for love, kindness, justice, and curiosity. We will wrestle, we will question, we will dance, we will dream, we will wonder, we will be frustrated, and we will hope. We aren't searching for singular answers or solutions. We are searching the sacred. Hello and welcome to Searching the Sacred. We're glad that you are joining us in the midst of season three. And today we are going to be diving into the book of Genesis. And we thought we would try to tackle a passage that some have had confusion, frustration, tension surrounding this complicated story. And it's the story of Abraham and Isaac, and it comes from Genesis 22. So Lisa, take it away. Uh, Morgan is going to start with verses 1 through 8, and I am reading out of a uh, Robert Alter translation. And it happened after these things that God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, take, pray, your son, your only one, whom you love, Isaac and go forth to the land of Moriah and offer him up as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will say to you. And Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took his two lads with him and Isaac, his son. And he split wood for the offering and rose and went to the place that God had said to him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from afar. And Abraham said to his lads, sit here with the donkey and let me and the lad walk ahead and let us worship and return to you. And Abraham took the wood for the offering and put it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the cleaver, and the two of them went together. And Isaac said to Abraham, his father, father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, here's the fire and the wood, but where is the sheep for the offering? And Abraham said, God will see the sheep for the offering, my son. And the two of them went together. Okay. Wow, we got a lot happening in this passage. Maybe some feelings that have risen up already. I saw a look on your face, Jason. What's what's going through your mind right now? I mean, it's just that story. I mean, I, I feel like so many people have read this story, heard this story, talked about this story, whether it's from a young age, whether it's hearing an awkward sermon on it, whether it's reading it themselves and just been like, I don't even know where to begin with this. I mean, it is such a weird story. I mean, and it's not probably weird. I should, I probably should be careful with my language, but it's just like, what in the world, you know, what in the world? Um, and yeah, I'm just putting myself in the shoes of Abraham. Like I, I just can't, I mean, I'm a dad, like, I, I can't understand this. I, I try to put myself in the shoes of this little boy, like, and I can't understand this. So, I mean, yeah, there's just a, like, what in the world is going on? Yep. <laughs> I mean, I've taught the Old Testament in like college courses and we've covered this and I still don't know what to do with it. Like I've, I've made something up or I've followed someone else's lead and I, I've never been comfortable. So I'm so glad we're exploring this today. 
Yeah. And I think that's a good place to start is is to say like, we're going to wrestle through some of this. We're going to see possibilities and what it says. But I think to know, like, just to be honest, that there are passages that are hard in the Bible. And this is one of them to say, like, even if we kind of see new things in this, it probably won't be all as satisfying as we want it to be. It still raises up questions and to let those questions sit, to not tie everything up with a pretty bow to say, yeah, okay, what do we, what do we do with things like this? Um, so reading, I mean, if we go on, if we read the whole chapter, we'll see that God provides a ram. Um, Isaac doesn't actually get sacrificed. We didn't read that part because that doesn't really let off the hook the fact that the question was asked in the first place. So what do we do with that question asked? What do we do with this being in here? Um, and so that really starts with verse one. And I wonder, even with verse one, how it feels to have, well, the way my translation says it is God tested Abraham. Is that what, is that what Alter said too? Yeah. How's that feel to have a chapter that starts with God testing Abraham? Well, in some ways it feels, I mean, I think the answer I want to give is like, it feels like crap, but in another, like, but if I hold it just a little bit, I think, oh, if you've got a leader, they going to get tested. Yeah, I think I, if I, I always look at it like Abraham's the one in charge and, and he's, he's willing to do this thing to his son. But if I place the authority of like, like if, if like Abraham's the child who's being raised up to be this great leader and God is the one that's trying to find out what he's got to work with, what God has to work with, then you know, then I think of it like, oh yeah, I do that with my kid all the time. Like I, I, I give them a little bit of responsibility to see how it's going to go, follow this direction, do this thing, you know, are you, you know, here's the responsibility I'm asking for you. And so I, I think the problem is that this is such an extreme um, request in a way, an extreme test, almost just a grossly violent, murderous test that i mean it's one thing for me to like test my son and be like hey can you take this 20 dollar bill go to the store buy this thing and bring me back the change and like to see if he like is responsible enough to do all those things like i'm not asking him to like go commit a crime i'm not asking him to like harm his brother and then being like just kidding it just feels like just wrong yeah, I mean, we, we did an episode on Cain and Abel at, a, at some point here, right? Where it's like, if God's going to test, that's part of it is maybe we can feel like, oh, it's okay that he's giving a test, but how do we feel about this being the test? Like this feels like a, a big one <laughs> and a confusing one. So the word for test is nasa. It's it's to test, to prove, to tempt. It's going to be used when the people are in the wilderness and they test God and God tests them. And there's this sort of 
testing ground of the wilderness. And this word's going to come into play there, but it's first being used here with Abraham before one of the ways to read like Genesis and Exodus is to notice what's happening to the families in Genesis before it happens to the people in Exodus. And so the people are going to be tested in the wilderness. Abraham's being tested here. And what is this test and how is he sort of forerunning what's going to come into play? What's interesting when we think about the test is, as I wonder what we assume the test is or isn't. Um, I mean, I feel like I've always, like what I feel like I've been taught, what I understand is, are you willing to sacrifice your son because mm -hmm. I told you to? Like, how far will you go to serve me? Feels like that's the test. Mm -hmm. it, I don't know if it that's does. It does feel like that's the test. And the interesting thing about it when you read it, Lisa, is, and I don't know if I picked up on this any other time that I've read it, um, is Abraham turns to the young men that are with him and says, stay here with the donkey. And I'm reading from the NRSV. Stay here with the donkey and the boy and I will go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. There's this, and that's in verse five. There's, Abraham knows what's about to happen or what he thinks is about to happen. And there's absolutely no reason to imagine that we are coming back unless he's carrying the remains of his son, which I don't, in that regard, I don't think he would like imagine that being a we. Now, maybe he's forced to say we because he doesn't want to like scare Isaac, but it's interesting. Maybe that's already his faith. Cause I know that later on he's going to get, this will be credited, credited to Abraham as, as showing his faith in God to, you know, prevail or to have, an, a different outcome but it, it feels like that's already like his mindset is like we're gonna go worship and then we're gonna come back like that's what's happening here even though i've been told the the sacrifice is my son well i think when i was reading it i probably even paused a little bit because i was like oh i don't think i've thought very much about the two people who go with mm. right right like there's actually two I mean, I'm assuming adult. I don't know if they're adult. I don't know. There's two, there's two other people that go with. Now, those two other people could either, like, they could, I don't know. It's just interesting to think about, like, all the different possibilities because they're there. Like, they could have tried to, like, help Isaac. Like, do they know what's going on? Do they not know? They could have overpowered Abraham if they thought Isaac was in danger. Or, I don't know. Like, there's just there's something about like, I just noticed them for the first time where I was like, oh, look at those two people hanging out with the donkey. Like, why drop them off? Why stop? Like, why, what are they doing? Which I think that starts to get at lots of, the, one of the problems we have with any familiar passage, we've done familiar passages before, is the things we end up not seeing in them because we think we know how they're playing out. So we've already raised a couple of questions. What is the actual test? We maybe assume we know what the test is, but all we're told is that God is testing. We haven't been told what the test is, just that it's a test. Also this question of who's there, how old are, how old are they? And how does that affect how we see the whole scene? So one of the questions about age, not just of the lads, but age of Isaac, is to notice Genesis 23, the very beginning of the next chapter, what happens in 23 verse 1. 
Sarah's 127 years old. Okay. Sarah's a hundred in chapter 23, verse one, Sarah is 127 years old and she dies, which means in chapter 23, verse one, Isaac is 37 years old because she, he was born when Sarah was 90. In chapter 21, the chapter right before this, in the beginning, Isaac is being weaned. In the ancient world, a weaning is going to happen probably when a kid is like five, because you're going to try to have that source of nutrition longer than we do in the modern Western world. So Isaac's age in chapter 22 is somewhere between six and 37. And how does where we assume his age, how do we, how does his age matter for how we hear this passage play out? So um, Gen the uh, Genesis Rabbah is an old midrash. Um, that midrash states that he was 26 years old at the time that the, the ancient rabbi sort of landed on. We think he was 26 in Genesis 22. So that's not necessarily the answer, but let's play with that as a possibility. You would still even be referred to as like young, you know, that's like a young adult. So it, like some of the language fits to be a young adult, but how old have we tended to picture Isaac in Genesis 22? And does it affect it if we picture a 26 year old? 26-year-olds are especially that far back in culture. I mean, we know that there was a lot more put on someone at a younger age. And so by 26, you're potentially at the kind of peak athletic ability, like strength-wise, like you're right at that age where you're like probably considered a man. You, I mean, his dad is what, like 116 126 I mean, I mean he's like an old dude so like he's not overpowering his son and he's probably not tricking his son at this point I mean I honestly like I have a 16 year old right now and I my husband's gonna be mad I say this <laughs> I think you could take my husband in strength <laughs> like not in like not like not by knowing what to do like I <laughs> Jeremiah still has him on that. But like, if I'm thinking about physical strength, like at 16, boys are like, I mean, they're like kind of man strength in some ways. Some of them are. Um, and if dad is a hundred, like, I don't think Abraham's like doing this by force. Mm -hmm. Right. Cause remember then he, then Abraham's like a hundred years older than Isaac, which we have our own questions about age in the old Testament, but allow ourselves as we study this to picture a 100 year old plus year old man and a 26 year old man journeying together. Whatever yeah, it I means mean, that's a, that's most likely what we have for ages. I mean, I always saw when I pictured this story, it was more of like the 10 year old version of Isaac, who was kind of clueless, kind of just going along for the ride, doing what his dad told him to do. And his dad says, lay down. He's like, OK, fine. You know, like doesn't know what else to do. So, you know, but I mean, a 26 year old, a 16 year old, you know, a 20 year old, like if it's older than like that 10, 12 year old range, then like there's a little bit more going on 
than just, well, dad said, so I'm just going to do it. It's a little bit more like, but no, I'm not going to lay down on that. Like we, I know what happens. Like, that's not a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I, okay. I have a, I have a quick question as we're talking about this little part of the passage. Like it says that state, like take your, take your only son. I, that's not his only son. Like there's some other stuff here with, like there's gotta be some stuff here because there is Ishmael. Okay, that's another place to sort of put this in context of what has happened in Genesis 21. And so this is also a part of his age or even why they sort of make this guess at 26 is 22 starts out with, and after these things, after some time has passed, well, that time has passed since this treaty with Abimelech at the well of Beersheba and since Ishmael was sent away and since the weaning. So that's where we can say like, there's sort of this, progression that says he's probably at least a teenager if it's after these things but then we can also say it's tying us back to those things and saying what's happened and what then is the test at this point in time so that after these things includes Ishmael having been sent away with Hagar in Genesis 21 that'd be another great study to do in a podcast sometime um and so One of the places that that has some interesting parallels is back in 21, when we are um, in verse, um, 16 in chapter 20, I think, let me make sure we're right in here. Chapter 21, verse 16, she's crying. Hagar has been wandering in the wilderness. The um, water is spent, by the way, once again here, Ishmael is probably about 18. Um, Because you can sort of do that same thing where in Genesis 17, when the um, covenant of circumcision happens, we see that um, Ishmael was given an age at that point of 13, is that right? Yes, Ishmael was 13 in Genesis 17. And that was a year before um, Isaac was born. And then he's weaned. So again, we have Ishmael around a late late teenager, early 20s in Genesis 21. And in Genesis 21, Hagar thinks that they're going to die. And she says, let me not look upon the death of the child. Oh, sorry. That's the wrong passage. The word lad. There we go. God heard the voice of the lad. Verse 17. Na'ar. That's the word being used in Genesis 22 about Isaac and the lad. So I think that Walter had that, the lad. So one of the wonderings, this was, a, that was a long roundabout way to hit at least this question of, wait a second, it's calling Isaac his only son. But he used to have Ishmael, but Ishmael's been sent away. And when Ishmael was sent away, Hagar had to wrestle with what? Possibly losing him. He might die. We're not sure we're going to survive in the wilderness. And now in 22, we're having the same word being used about Isaac that was used about Ishmael. And how is how might that parallel have something to do with what's happening with Abraham is Abraham experiencing what he had, what Hagar had to experience. Mm, That's a parallel. Even 22 verse three starts with like, so Abraham rose early in the morning 
and 21 verse 14 is so abraham rose early in the morning like he's rising early in the morning and when he's like having to something's happening with his with these boys the, his legacy this the two descendants that he has the there's something there's something that's happening with like there's a parallel in these two stories and in 21 abram abraham was told like don't worry sending him away like i'm going to bless him like there's still problems in genesis 21 just like there's still problems in genesis 22 but god does say like ishmael's gonna be okay i'm gonna bless him but then hagar has to go through the actual like but will he be okay because it seems like we're gonna die and now here we are in 22. So it starts, let's go back to verse one again, because there's a word in here that becomes a pretty key word in several passages that's not always obvious in our English translation. So it says that it came past after these things that God was testing Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and Abraham responded with, my translation says, behold. What's your translation say, Jason? Here I am. Here I am. Better than behold. Um, how did Alter say it, Lisa? Uh, here I am. Here I am. So here I am is Hanani. Um, so uh, so Hanani is behold. That's why my translation says behold. But Hanani is basically behold I. Um, and so behold, I is a certain way of saying here I am. So if I'm saying behold, I behold, here I am. What is the energy of that? Have we talked about Hanani on the podcast yet? Okay, good. Um, what, what am I saying potentially? I mean, it sounds a little bit more formal than like conversational. It's mm -hmm. a little bit more like presentation than casual conversation. Okay, presentation, that's an interesting word. Like you're being called into the th throne room and then like you arrive and you're like, behold, here I am. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> hey, I feel like it, for me, it has a little bit more of that oceans feel of like being willing to do whatever. Like I'm just in, like whatever. Like there's a way, like here I am. Like. I, in lots of Christian circles, it feels like that thing of like answering the call and saying yes. Okay. And that comes from that answering the call and saying yes, comes from the moments we hear Hanani in scripture. Hanani is used here when Abraham says it, it's used by Moses at the burning bush. When God says, Moses, Moses, Moses responds, Hanani. It's used in first in first Samuel when the voice of God is calling Samuel and Samuel says, Hanani, here I am. Um, it's used at these key moments of here I am. And it has this using this language of behold, I is like presenting yourself. Here I am, all of me listening for whatever comes next. Um and it tends to then have a big something on the other side of it. When someone says Hanani, it tends to be 
a life-changing thing to say, but without necessarily the knowledge that it's going to be life life-changing before they say it. Like, what does Abraham know at the point that he says Nanny? Like an accidental, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, even your, your other examples of Moses and Samuel, they didn't exactly know what was going on in that moment. I mean, Samuel's a little boy. He doesn't even recognize where the voice is coming from until Eli tells him the Lord is talking to you. Moses is out tending sheep, sees a bush on fire and doesn't have any idea what's really going on until he actually starts a conversation with God. So like there's, yeah, similarly, Abraham may anticipate that there's something about to happen because the Lord's speaking to him, or he could just be like, yeah, Hey, here I am. I'm ready. Like what's next, you know? And he's not ready to hear what's comes next. Maybe. Yeah. And when I think that I'm wondering about like the, that, that, overlap with oceans that Lisa mentioned, like I, um, Isaiah also says in any, like, where's a prophet? I want to send a prophet. And, and Isaiah says like, here I am, send me. He says Hanani, but I think that like, we think of that one. We don't think of these other ones. Like I, I Isaiah kind of knew what he was saying yes to. Moses didn't. Abraham really didn't. All, all God said was Abraham. All God said was his name. <laughs> I like I like Lisa's accidental yes. Abraham, yeah. here I am. Okay. Like, is that the test? Oh, like, okay. Yeah, say more. Well, I mean, we make a lot of, we have a lot of leaps and bounds on this one, but If it's like the accidental yeses or you're saying yes to you don't know what, then it feels like it's that space of like, then that's the test. Will you say yes? Because mm -hmm. if you don't, then it feels like, well, then it feels like we're back in the garden and God's, where are you? <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Like, it feels like those questions, like how you answer the question matters. Mm -hmm. And what, yeah, maybe he wouldn't have been like, yeah, here I am, if he'd known what it was coming. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's an interesting one to tie it back to the garden and wonder, like, when God showed up in the garden and said, where are you? If people had said, if humans had said Hanani, like, what if this, what if that would have changed? Because Hanani would require coming out of hiding. How does not being in hiding change the story from the beginning? Well, in some ways, Abraham is like, he's had a lot of stuff go down. Like, like he's kind of past the point of hiding in his life. In some way, like he's wrestled for a lot of stuff and to figure out, but like, he's not done wrestling yet. Like he probably wants to be done. I mean, good gravy. Like he's been wondering about like how he's going to have this, like, how do you become a great nation when you don't have kids? And so finally has like, has a son has to send him away has another son. Okay. Got this one. Like this one seems to be all the right. Like we have checked all the boxes. We're right. We're, this is it. This is the kid. And then, <laughs> then he's got this dumb thing. Well, and maybe that takes us to the last verse of chapter 21 of what Abraham had been doing, because chapter 21 ends with Abraham doing what? 
He's living with the in the land of the Philistines for many days. And in verse 33, he planted a grove. Like there's a way he sort of settled. He has, but okay, interesting. This is just a weird tidbit on some of the the tamarisk tree, though, he will never see it produce. It takes a whole generation of time for it to become a tree. It's like 70 or 80 years. Like it's a it's a whole thing. But anyways, he did he planted that without knowing it was for himself. It wasn't for himself, it's for somebody else. So while he's settled, he's also still thinking future. But that probably means he's only partly there. <laughs> okay. So say that again. Well, he's like he's settled. He's like kind of thinking the future, but that he's not really there yet then. Because like a lot of us settle and think future. Right? Especially like when you kind of get done. Like I'm I've checked my boxes. I'm gonna settle down here. I'm tired. Good. It's good work. It's gonna We're working for it. Mm -hmm. And now God shows up with this test and says, take your son, the only one, maybe, how do we think about this word only? What are some of the ways that Abraham's going to hold the word only? Yes, biologically he had Ishmael, but Ishmael's gone. So who is Isaac to Abraham? The fulfillment of all the promises. And more. What else is he to Abraham? The future. And more. What else is he to Abraham? I think you might need to tell us because this is not making great podcasting. Yeah, but the pause is so good in a study room. It's like, well, let's just pause. Let's because those answers aren't wrong. And there's just more. Like if he's the only son and we're in the ancient world, well, it's the only son he has in terms of like if he has sent Hagar and Ishmael out, that means there is no like Ishmael is not going to be caring for him or for anything else. Like out. Isaac is like that's that's the one. That's the legacy. That's like, that's the, he takes it all on. That's everything gets handed off to Isaac. Right. So it's the fulfillment of the promise. I mean, again, everything we said is right. And it's also like Isaac is the one who's now becoming head of household. Abraham's in his hundreds. He's going to be, he's going to, his, presumably his health is going to start failing if it hasn't already. There is no retirement plan. The retirement plan is that your children care for you. Right. He's probably not having another kid. <laughs> like even though there's been miracles already like at some point you probably are like there's this isn't gonna happen again so when we think about it. so when we think about the trajectory of abraham let's think about let's let's hold our finger in genesis 22 and go back to genesis 12 when we're introduced to the story of abraham in genesis 12 verse 1 he is told what Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you, make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless those 
bless you and curse those who curse you and then all the families of the earth shall be blessed is the philistines the land like is that where he's supposed to get out of um well that's not even where i was headed there but i do i think somewhere along lines it says he's not supposed to (laughs) be there but but really this this promise begins with what instruction in verse one go from what from your father's house from your family from your your country your native land your father's house what is that in the ancient world what is abraham well at this point in brown what is he being told to leave security safety. security security safety everything known everything from his past he's being told to leave to enter into a new future Chapter 22, if we kept our fingers back with there, take your son, your only son, whom you love and go. The lit. So the word is halak in both circumstances in different translations. So in chapter 12, verse one, it's lech laha. So it's go you for you. Um, so it's like halak is repeated twice in different forms. It's also repeated twice in different forms here go you for you to the land. So we have another lech laha. What is he leaving now? What is God asking him to leave? Still leaving a security. What is the security he's leaving now? In some ways, it's this, it's similar. It's this way of like, it's altering future plan, like to not be able to hold on to, like, it just feels like it's, there's this tension of like, if you think it's the one thing, it's not. Like, there's just always that space. It's just when you think you understand it, Nope, <laughs> that's not it. I, I think there's an inherent tension that the Bible points to, and I think the Lord's Prayer does this. I think there's other passages that do this. Maybe this is one of them too, where the, the tendency of being human is that once we overcome the big tension, the, the hard thing, you know, once we've suffered or whatever, we've gone through it, the temptation is that we then take credit for wherever we've arrived, right? And it, it's like, you know, hey, go to this land that I'm going to show you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. I want to do all these things through your, your family's going to like number the stars and stand in the sea or whatever, you know, like all that. And you struggle, 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 struggle. You know, Ishmael, not the, you know, not the one I had, you know, in mind and sends that, you know, him off. And then it's like, okay, Isaac, now I've done it. Now I've had the kid and now I can rest easy. Now I can just chill out and like I've I've done it right like it's happened and it's like nah you you don't get to take pride in this like that was that was God and and so there's a a level of like humility that's required at all times within the faith and and I'm not saying that Abraham was like arrogant because I don't we don't really get his mindset here but it's a little bit like you know like kind of to Lisa's point like like you're really not done. Like you're not ever done. What is it? What does it mean for us to not 
settle into living like we're done, like we've arrived, like we've got it, like everything's fulfilled, but to wonder what's still ahead. Well, and Abraham is open to it. Like the Hanani helps you, like you could probably choose to be done. But in some way, Abraham's still open to it. Like you could really remain open your whole life. Yeah, what is it to say that Abraham, after all this time, is still saying Hanani? Hey, everyone, it's Jason, and we're going to continue this episode in just a moment. But before we do, I wanted to let you know, we are starting a Patreon page. Patreon is a site for people to give a monthly donation for the work of a podcast or other creative endeavor. And so you can go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and you can search Searching the Sacred and then sign up to become a follower and to donate on a monthly basis. That could be as small as $1 a month, $5 a month, $10 a month, or more. Whatever you think works for your life and for the work that we're doing, we would appreciate any support that you can give us so that we can continue to put this podcast out there and to continue to do this work. We are grateful to do it. If you're curious about an easier way to get to this site, we will have uh, a link in the show notes. So be sure to check that out. Thank you for being with us on this journey. Thanks for being a part of this community. And we look forward to much, much more. There's no hesitation after the go, right? It's take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. And it's not like, and then Abraham debated whether or not this was a good call. You know, there's there's no hesitation. So early the next morning, he got up, saddled the donkey, and they were off. Like, there's doesn't seem like this was a thought process of like, you know, Am I really hearing from God in this moment, or did I eat, you know, bad lamb last night? It's kind of sad though, because we don't have a Sarah in this story. Like her voice is completely missing. Yeah. And then some, and then she dies at twenty-three. So I feel like I well it's probably a huge space for some midrash on like sarah's perspective on this whole thing that just happened mm-hmm. well if you watch the nbc show the bible you do get sarah's perspective <laughs> okay. she's very is, very it... <laughs> very dramatically heartbroken about what's potentially going to happen oh no i didn't see that oh yeah <laughs> i missed that <laughs> they dramatized that up like crazy <laughs> Well, and I think that is it. Like, we can wonder, does Sarah know, like, is Abraham keeping this a secret from Sarah? Is she in on it? How is she in the, and why is it Abraham? Maybe that's another sort of way to ponder that, to say the request is for Abraham. Why? And what is, what does Abraham have to learn here that's unique to his journey? Like, one of the things I wonder about is the way that Abraham kept getting confused about what the promise was about. Um, so in verse, like if we flip back to chapter 15, um, verse two, um, Abraham and God are having this conversation and then he says like, Oh Lord God, what will you give me for? I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar. 
But what was never even mentioned in, in the initial call of 12, one through three? Offspring. Offspring. We get offspring don't come into play until after he's already left in verse six. Then we start to have this conversation about seed, offspring, like it starts to weave its way in. But the initial promise was never about children. It was about becoming a great nation. And what's the difference between having a child and being a great nation? And what might Abraham still have to learn about that at this phase when Isaac is an adult that was different than what he had to learn about that in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15? Like, what is there to learn now about what it is to be a great nation? So maybe let's think about that. What's the risk? If, if Abraham's in the mindset, it's about Isaac. The promise is fulfilled. Isaac was the promise. Isaac is a grown man. It's fulfilled. Where could that take the trajectory? It's already taken the trajectory, right? Like it's impacted Ishmael and Hagar. It's a, like, it, the impact is actually quite great that it is Isaac. And so how you raise Isaac, how you, like all the decisions you make actually are greatly impacted if you think this is it. You know, it, it, yeah, like you said, it, I think it really teaches Isaac to some degree, you know, that this isn't about you, buddy. Like, I might do this through you, but this isn't about you. And, you know, I wonder what the, you know, we asked the question, what's the test? I wonder if the test is, how are you raising this child? Is this child the golden child, the, like the child that can, you know, is gonna like be preserved no matter what, like, you know, could walk on water or is this child a kid, right? You know, is it just a man who, you know, needs to, needs to obey as well? So maybe the test is how are you raising him? I keep wondering about changing the word test to invitation. Like in some way, like when I hear tests, I have a particular notion of things, but I still feel like there's just feels like invitational. Like there's, I mean, it's not a great invitation, mm -hmm. but in some ways it feels like there's this, like the Bible's okay with people failing. Mm -hmm. Like people fail all the time. It's very normal actually with like with like massive consequences for other people <laughs> right <laughs> and this one is you know like what's what is being what's being said here like what is the like in a test like if i think of it a test and i'm like there's this there's a plus like abc like this and i kind of feel like i it should be more obvious then if that's what it is and it's not obvious so then i feel like there's got to be I have to reorient myself a little bit because like, yeah, like to get away from the thing that I keep thinking, I keep hearing it in my, like, <laughs> will he sacrifice his son? Does he love God enough? <laughs> like, that's what I just keep hearing in the story. And I'm like, stop hearing that. Like, what else can you hear? Like turn off mm -hmm. that orientation. Well, it's so hard to do that because the, the idea is so visceral. Like, it's so hard not to hear that as the test. 
because like sacrificing a kid just it feels wrong on like I don't even know how many levels all of them and like so to not have that be the test it's just like so hard to get out of that mindset because and, and it's you have to deal with that I think that's the other thing is like I think there's a lot of this conversation that is really fascinating and interesting and I, I I'm all for it but like you still have to reckon with the fact that God said go and sacrifice the kid like I, I just think that that has to be dealt with somehow and and even if it's not the, the test it was still there and it it's gross okay right it this reminds me though too of like um do you I don't know I don't know if you had this experience I had it in my 40s <laughs> where I was like holy crap like Greek mythology was like real during the Bible times <laughs> like 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 Greek mythology was like people actually did that worship like that those were real stories so like in some ways I'm like having to remind myself like child sacrifice happened Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like that was culturally that was happening and so because like it's so foreign now that it's like it is super jarring well and we're not that far away from a plague that kills the firstborn of an entire nation so I mean we're and like you said there are other cultures so like there's a part of me that wonders like how much of this story is a subversion of a common practice at that time and is saying something about God intervening in that practice and saying no that's not how I actually want there to be worship done and so we're going to stop doing that now and we're going to do it differently and so but that sounds like almost too easy of a an excuse is just to say that it's like a you know a cultural subversion of a common practice even though i'm like comfortable with that being the idea i don't know if that's <laughs> the entire idea well i i think maybe what part of what this starts to get at is okay whether we say invitation or test what if more than one response was possible and what if that's a part of how to hold the passage to say one way that God could be subverting the practice of child sacrifice is saying, I'm going to ask some, I'm going to ask one of my followers to do that. I'm going to stop him. And then for time memorial, you'll see that I'm a God who stops child sacrifice. That's possibility A. That's one way for that test to be passed. If we assume that the end is there is not a child sacrifice, what would be another way to pass that test? If you're Abraham, he could ask God to change his mind okay what if Abra- what if one of the ways to pass this test could have been God from what I know of you you're not a God who wants child sacrifice so which we've seen him do right with uh like was it Sodom and Gomorrah like yes let's also city, place like- this this is after Sodom and Gomorrah when he argued with God, if there's even one righteous person, will you save the city? God said, yes, he has already had that fight with God. What if the test is, will you fight with me over this? Yeah. What if the test, back to what Jason said earlier, so just bringing it back into this, what if you pass the test by how you invite Isaac into it? What if this is a test that's about Isaac in a different way than we sometimes think about? Well, we assume he passes the test because he puts him on the, <laughs> that he puts him up. 
but maybe mm-hmm. like maybe he failed the test <laughs> like well i mean it says pretty clearly do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him for now i know that you fear god since you have not withheld your son your only son from me so i mean like at some level when he doesn't when he's when he's like literally holding the knife over his son and he's ready to kill him God's like, okay, 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 okay. You did it. You passed. Like, I got it. You're really devoted. That's awesome. You're not going to hold back but, whatever I tell you. But does he say you did it? Like you passed. He, God doesn't say you passed. God says, don't, don't do the thing I asked you to do. Yeah, but he really clearly says like, for now, I know that you fear God. Right, you have not withheld your son. I, I see you it don't. sounds like he's saying, okay, <laughs> you got to the point that I wanted you to. Now, now, now you're now that's good. Or maybe God just saw like that's just the way that God interpreted it. I don't know. Maybe. I'm trying to bust it open a little bit. No, I appreciate that. That's good. <laughs> I can see you don't want to. <laughs> well, I, I, I also I, I think my role here is to play the part of the traditionalist. <laughs> oh, we're going that way. <laughs> I don't know. Well, everybody listening to this cannot see all the facial expressions that we're making because we're having a fun time here. Well, it's an example of wrestling, right? Like that we both can open it up and not not too quickly or not too easily to say there is something because the story does get repeated as a, like, now I know that you won't withhold your son. Like that's a part of what we do with atonement theology in the New Testament. Like there's a bunch of ways that goes forward, but there's a way to then wrestle with it here and say, okay, how are we hearing that now I know? Are we hearing that's like, check, you pass the test or... Is there, I mean, how does that, is there a different way to hear it? Is there a different way to hear that now I know? Um, which I feel like is what Lisa's asking. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, that's kind of why it's like, is there a different, like, oh, now I know that that's what you were doing there versus like, oh, now I see that you, like, you trust me to be a God that wouldn't do that. Or now I see that you, you love your son and you're willing to fight for your son or like all the different, like in all of Abraham's potential responses he could have made that God might've had an affirming response, no matter what the response was. Well, and in verse 11, how does it affect how we hear that in verse 12 to know that in verse 11, we have another Hanani. So the angel of the Lord calls to Abraham out of heaven this time says his name twice Abraham Abraham and he says Hanani so he said Hanani when he was comfortable in Beersheba and he's saying Hanani again while holding a knife in this really terrible moment what does that say about Abraham that he's saying Hanani both times (laughs) life has shifted completely in the last week and he's still saying Hanani how is that and now I see (laughs) that God is saying. And there's a Hanani in the middle that I, we haven't talked about as we think about Isaac's role in this because verse seven, Isaac says to his father, Abraham, my father, and Abraham says, or and he says, Hanani, my son. So we have Abraham in this passage saying Hanani three times. It's not a word that's used that often. That sort of strength of presenting yourself is not that often. He does it twice to God and once to his son. 
What does that say about how Abraham is inhabiting this moment in time that he's also saying Hanani to his son? I mean, I think that's where I get the picture of like that kind of uber confident father who's reassuring the son that like, yeah, like this is the way we're going. Like, you just got to trust me. I know it doesn't make sense. And that's where I think the 10 year old version of Isaac makes sense in my head. Cause it's like, when you see your father that confident, you just kind of go for it because well, dad knows best in a way. And, and so to, to imagine like an older, like a 16 or a 20 or a 26 year old Isaac seeing this super confident old man and being willing to go along with it is, is really just kind of a fascinating trajectory of the story. There's a way of hearing all of that in verse um, that we'll see how this translates because this is sort of an acting it out moment. So we'll see how this does verbally. So in verse six, Abraham takes the wood of the burnt offering and puts it where? On Isaac. On Isaac. So we got a picture Isaac, however old he is, he's old enough to carry all the wood. So that again, probably puts him a little older than 10. He's, he's the one carrying all of the wood on his back. I don't know. My, my six-year-old's pretty strong. I've seen him do some amazing things. But anyway, keep going. Um, And what does Abraham have in his hand? Fire and the knife. The fire and the knife. And they are both, and then this is the language in verse six, they both, they went both of them together. And now Isaac pauses and says, so now let's picture them facing each other. He says, my father, if we sort of picture a line, we, we have Isaac and we have Abraham facing each other. What does Abraham have in his hand? Fire and knife. What does Isaac have on his back? Wood. So there is a visual here potentially that is, again, a hard one. We're not acting it out <laughs> of what is Abraham's language? God will do what god will provide the lamb for a burnt offering my son um well and that's i think that the word provide is maybe our problematic god will see for himself raah the lamb if you're picturing the scene of here's wood here's a living creature here's a fire here's a knife where do we see the lamb in between the two Okay, so there's a way to picture verse seven as the two of them agreeing that Isaac is the lamb. God will see the lamb. We've got the wood, we've got the fire and the knife. You're next to the wood. I've got the fire and the knife. God will see the lamb. And then they both go forth together. So what if, this is sort of a midrash possibility that um, I first heard from Rabbi Allen, who used to come to the Twin Cities, of what if by the end of verse eight, Isaac is cognizant that he is the lamb? I mean, actually, it's a lot more plausible than the other possibility, that he's just like a really, really not smart 26-year-old who happens to lay down on the top of an altar and is watching his father pick up a knife because that doesn't make much sense like who would be naive enough to like think nothing of that you know it makes way more sense that like he gets okay 
for whatever reason, this is what we're being asked to do and I'm trusting it. So if that's true, if Isaac is in on it, and whether he's in on it in verse eight or whether he's in on it at the point where, again, if we picture him as older, he's laying down on the altar while Abraham is holding a knife and isn't fighting back this hundred year old plus man. What is that? When we think about raising Isaac and the promise and, and sort of that part that you brought forward earlier, Jason, like what is this doing for Isaac's frame of reference for what the promise is and isn't about? I mean, it's just not about him. Like, I mean, if, if he's this expendable and the promise is still real and true, then it it's just, regardless of how this goes forward, it's not, I mean, you could even, you could, I guess, make the argument that if he survives this, then like, it really is about him. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but, but maybe, the, but I think the lesson here is that like, this isn't really about you. It's about something much bigger than everybody here. And it's still, I mean, back to our not tying up with a bow, this is still quite problematic. It's, I mean, this would be very traumatic for Isaac. <laughs> that doesn't, there's much that it doesn't resolve. And how might we need that experience, whether we're Abraham or Isaac in the story of knowing, holding that tension of it's, it's both really about us and really not about us. And what does it do as we sort of hold the both of that? Like Isaac is important enough that he's saved here, but he's also not essential because he could have been sacrificed. Like, how do we need to know both as we're inhabiting our lives and our futures? There I'm like holding death more metaphorical than actual. Because when I actually picture this as an, a literal death, it's much more problematic. So let's metaphorically... How, do, how does it affect how we live if we think about ourselves as both essential and unessential simultaneously? Well, it's absolutely the tension. It's actually how you hold power well, I think. I think in some ways that that's actually the, the crux of so many things. Um, since we're, you know, we have a lot of conversations about church and whatnot, it is like some of the thing, like when we talk about um, like there's like the celebrity pastor there's there's different places where if you become so central that this is your idea this is your thing and you're leading it and that like you can center yourself real fast and that just builds a whole system around you that is ripe for something horrible happening so like it's that thing of like you like yeah you've there is something for you to do good in this world there is something there is some mission that you can get on with god that is going to be quite the ride but it's not only like only you can say yes but it's not just you who can have that ride which like that's that hinani thing right like you're the only person who can say hinani <laughs> but god can ask a lot of people to say hinani Yeah, I think like the pacifist in me just like ha like has a really hard time with like death and murder being like so prevalent in the story that it almost makes this like an untouchable passage to like try to make sense out of. Um, unless you're gonna talk about it like you said metaphorically, 
where it's about something much bigger than just this boy potentially dying because you know i yeah it's that i can like talk about all day like you're like lisa so eloquently put but the other side of it i just like it feels like a non-starter like no <laughs> like sorry like if this is the faith you want me to be a part of i don't want to be a part of it like i don't want to be a part of a faith that sacrifices children especially when this one i mean and it's like i almost said like especially when this is my only one as if if i had 10 like i'd be fine with like okay fine like i'll sacrifice one of them like no like it doesn't even matter that it's the only one it's a kid like you just it's your son it's your flesh and blood whatever it doesn't even matter like no like it just don't i don't i mean if it would be like sacrifice like your enemy i'd be like why like redeem your enemy like like help them learn and grow and help them not be an enemy anymore love them like like trust that God's about transformation of, of enemies. Like I don't, I don't, I just don't get the death being so on the surface with this. Well, what if like, what if though, like we kind of talked about a little bit that it's um, like, there's some space in there to recognize that it's about like the future. Like what, like what Isaac represents is like all the future, all the security, all the promise fulfillment. And so then to think about like what in our lives is the thing that is our security, that is our promise, that it like fulfillment. And in yeah. some ways that feels like then we start getting into that space of like, well, how, like, how am I holding my retirement? Yeah. Like, what am I building for? What am I building towards? Would I be willing to like throw the whole thing out? Would I like, can I open hand that whole thing? Would I be willing to? Could I even consider it? Or is it like such a tightly gripped, I can't even think about something like that? Because that would be, that's too, that's too much. That's too far. That's like, because I think in some ways we, it's again, thinking like both like time-wise, that leap is a little different. Like we got to figure out like a way for it to be resonant for us. Like sacrificing children is not resonant. Like it, that's not even yeah, nope. I really appreciate yeah, the work you're doing that. here. I really appreciate the work you're doing here, Lisa, because it helps it helps me reframe it. And it, and, and it's because it's just so impossible to like think of this at all literally. Even though, like, you know, I know that if I were to say the story isn't literal story, then I would get like, you know, it'd be really, really, you know, people would not like that. I would say that. So I can believe this happened if you, you know, like as a as an actual thing. Um, but that it was for other reasons that it took place to help us learn something bigger. Uh, about how we hold our future, how we hold like our power, all that beautiful things that you're pointing to, you know, because it, it, it reminds me a little bit of a question I was asked when I was going through my licensure process with the United Methodists. It was a question about, do you love God um, only? That was a question. And it's like, it's like an ancient John Wesley question for, for like all pastors. Like it comes straight from like this ordination th- and, and and my answer was no. Like I love my kids, I love my wife, I love my dog, I love my friends. Like, and I think that that is me loving God. Like, so like, can I say yes? I only love God. Yeah, by extension, other people. Like, part of me was like, what kind of question is this? Because, like, it sounded stupid. Like, do I only love God? Like, no, of course not. Like, 
because it's like even Jesus was like, love God and others. Like, so like, what are we talking about here? But I get the point is like to think of it deeper and more metaphorically in a way. But I don't know. I guess there's sometimes I'm just so literal of a person that when you ask me a point blank question, like I know the right answer, but like, sorry, I, 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 Hey, go murder a kid. No, like, you know, so, but yeah, I so appreciate the wrestling with what does it mean to hold power? What does it mean to hold our future? Whose is it really? Who's it for? And yeah. What does that mean about what it means to be human really? So thank you, Lisa, I think is what I'm trying to say. What is it for? What does it mean to be human? Like that's taking, I mean, one of the ways to think about son in this passage as well is to back, go back to the household that this, a son is the builder of the family name. That's actually one of the ways you can sort of translate the word son in the widest sense. So um, a descendant, uh, right? And so there's a way that sort of take that thing that's building up your name. Which is what was originally promised. Your name will be great. And part of the way to make your name great is to actually have descendants. Right. So take that. And then that's where it maybe feels a little different in verse 12, maybe only feels a little different because lay not your hand upon the lad. We have that lad again, but um, now I know that you fear God. You have not withheld your, let's translate that name builder, your only from me. And we might ask, what is our only? Like when we think about that thing that builds up our name, that gives us that security, that gives us that future, that gives us our legacy. And we think about what of that is like our precious, like a little Lord of the Rings. <laughs> what is our precious? What is our only? Or like we, the rich young ruler, right? Like the New Testament, right. like that thing that you're not willing to give up. Yeah. And what does it mean to not withhold that from God and to trust God with that? It's a hard ask. Um. Can we also talk just for a second about verse 13? Sure. Um, like that's a ram. Like ram, are rams given for sacrifice? I feel like they always sacrifice lambs. What's up with a ram? <laughs> um, well, like that's a big, like, isn't that like a big horned one? <laughs> yes. That's so familiar with all the goats. <laughs> or is um, it a goat? I mean, what, what is it? <laughs> what kind of animal is it? Yeah. I mean, the word is Aiel, um, for a ram. We already encountered a ram in chapter 15. That's one of the things that Abraham, uh, Abram at that point sacrificed as a part of the covenant was a ram of three years old. Okay. But I ram and I yield me also means mighty. Um, so that word I yield, um, I believe Lisa, you have tattooed on your body. Oh, I do. 
Um, <laughs> it's like you were just made aware of it. <laughs> so a shet ayil that, that Rachel Held Evans made famous in thinking about a woman of valor, that word for valor is the same as the word for ram. I mean, it's different when you get vowel markings in there, but there's no vowel markings in the ta- text, right? So it's the word for ram is the word for strength, valor, might. Um, and so there's, it's, that's an interesting play when we're thinking here, Abraham lifted his eyes and look behind him, something mighty was caught in the thicket and Abraham sacrificed his might or his valor or his strength. Like there's still a sacrifice being made that was, you know, there's an interesting play there. The other interesting play I think that can happen is this, this emphasis on the horns, um, in verse that is the horns are caught in the thicket and the horns of a ram are what make shofar. Um, when we think about the shofar trumpets of the scripture, they are ram horns. Um, so the word shofar isn't actually used here actually. So, but metaphorically shofar horns, the horns of rams come into play a lot in the future. Well, and if he sacrificed a ram for the, like at the, t- at a covenant, that also like the memory of that too like there could be a like to to pull in covenant to pull in the shofar to pull like that's a lot of imagery there there's a whole lot of imagery here for what this horn is and in fact i mean when we think about so the word used for for horn here is uh karen um so it's a horn um but that's in when we are in joshua 6 5 it came to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn so same thing, ram's horn in when they're conquering the promised land in Joshua 6, ram's horn here, cotton thicket. That's starting to make that connection of this horn. So there's lots of places for mysticism in Genesis 22. And in now those places of mysticism, we're still holding that tension that Jason was so beautifully bringing us to. Of We're still talking about humans. <laughs> And this passage is tough to both say there's some really deep, beautiful symbolism in here. When we think about the invitation of Abraham, when we think about Hanani, when we think about what it is to sacrifice our future um, and, and trust God with it. And it's not tidy because we are also talking about real humans and real trauma. Um, and what do we do with that in the Bible? Um, And so sometimes I like to think about those passages as like a way to sort of separate out the two questions so that we can really think about both. I I like to do this with the flood as well to say, when we're talking about the flood, there are these really deep, important questions about like, oh, I don't like that God would destroy things. Those are really important questions. And sometimes we can get so stuck on those that we miss the symbolism of the flood and the questions of when does renewal require death? When do we have to let something completely pass away and be reborn because it no longer can be redeemed in its current form? When have we had those experiences of waiting on an, on an ark? Or, like there's a bunch of beautiful symbolism in there that we don't want to miss because of those hard questions. And so there's a way to honor, gosh, some of the questions in here about this sacrifice are hard. Let's hold those in, as good and true. And let's not miss the other questions that are here. Are we willing to say Hanani to God? Are we willing to say Hanani to the next generation? Are we willing to kind of take this journey without not knowing exactly where it will lead? Are we 
when have we been Isaac in this passage? When have we been Abraham in this passage? When have we been those other guys that are along and we never went back and visited, you know, how are they doing waiting for these two to get back? Um, And to say there's some really rich stuff in there for us if we're willing to ask and see and wrestle through it. And I think it's fair to to maybe caution people as they are planning conversations with friends or Bible studies or sermons or whatever it is they're doing to, to recognize that some of these stories, depending on the people's history of those you're leading or those you're in connection to just might be a lot. Like if, if someone's experienced abuse, hearing this story, it might be a real, it just might be too much. Um, similar if, if someone survived Hurricane Katrina or other natural disasters hearing about a flood may be too much and it's not to say that we can't ever explore those or learn from those it's that um, we need to recognize um, the the pain that some of these stories can bring up for people um, and uh, oh. and kind of hold that space with them maybe one of the ways to to um like if we assume that this is the only passage in the Bible where that question is asked, that could get like, then we might feel stuck having to study it. But like, what other passages can we think about that maybe don't have death on the table, but that like, kind of like we pointed to like in the New Testament, Jason, like what, like what's the one thing you can't give up? Like mm-hmm. there's other entry points to get to questions. Like the Bible isn't saying, it's not prescriptive. Mm-hmm like in some ways, like you don't have to have the whole thing and be like, okay, with all of it, it's okay to go. Like, that's not, that is not a passage for me. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and we can do that. I mean, even when we say like, okay, I want to study a passage in the Bible about testing. So this is one option. Also manna in Exodus 16, four is given as a test. Well, how is provision a test? That's weird. There were their God's not withholding, their God is providing, but the kind of provision it is, is a test of sorts. Um, how about Exodus 17, when there's a test that has to do with lack of water? Like there's even those tests, how about the New Testament when the spirit takes Jesus out in the wilderness to be tested? So to say there, there are multiple ways of testing. So even that one, let's not lock in. This is not the only test. So maybe we don't even have to look at this passive, but also let's not prescribe that this is what God is asking of all of us at all times and in all places. This is, the, this is a test that God had for Abraham. Why was this the test for Abraham and Isaac? And why was it a different test for a people group coming out of slavery in Exodus? Why might it be a different test for us today? Um, and where do we find ourselves in the text when the text gets complicated to read? This podcast is a partnership between 40 Orchards and Processing Faith. 40 Orchards invites people to wrestle through biblical texts using the ancient Jewish concepts of Midrash. In a 40 Orchards study, every question is safe, everyone is welcome, and every voice is valued. We believe there's room for all of us. No person and no question is off limits because we know that together we can expand each other's experience of what is sacred, whole, and good. You can learn more about 40 Orchards and sign up for a study by going to 40orchards.org. 
That's 40orchards.org. Processing Faith is a space created by Jason Steffenhagen for people to do exactly that, process their faith. It's not one thing, but more like a good recipe. It's like one part pastoral care, one part theological exploration, and one part wrestling with all the questions. You can learn more about Processing Faith and sign up for a free 45-minute session by going to ProcessingFaith.com. Thanks again for joining us on Searching the Savior.